Good morning, Covenant Grace, and good morning to all of you who are visiting with us this morning. Um, before I get started with uh, prayer and with the message, I just thought I'd give you a little bit of a Cobb family update since we haven't been able to see each other in person. And um, we, like probably a lot of you guys, have done a lot of the stuff around the house that probably should have been done a long time ago. Uh, the kids and I moved about 20,000 pounds, maybe a little more than 20,000 pounds of DG from the front yard to the backyard, and we did it via wheelbarrow. So that was exciting. We also hung some string lights in the backyard, which was great. On the electrical front, we also got uh, this like electric mouse trap, which humanely electrocutes mice. That was a need. Um, I got a desk. I got it, uh, don't get too impressed. I got this folding desk. So the desk can fold up and go under our bed. And that's because I don't really have an office. I would normally do sermon prep at a coffee shop. And so I got this little desk and when I'm all done, it's a trendle desk. I fold it all up and I put it under a bed. <laughs> we also started grinding my own coffee beans, which has been fabulous. And I think I've been freed from the need for the coffee shop between my folding desk and my ground home ground coffee beans. I think I'm all set there. Um, we stopped feeding the birds in the backyard. We used to feed uh, the doves in the backyard. We used to feed them bird seed. And uh, until look, about two weeks ago, we realized that hawks were coming and eating the doves. And so we didn't realize it, but our bird feeders were actually luring these poor doves to their deaths. So we cut that out. Um, weather's warmer, so our tortoises, our leopard tortoises have come out of, uh, out of their homes and are out basking in the sun. What else can I tell you? Um, haven't had a haircut since January 4th, as some of you have so kindly noticed. Our kids are adapting. Um, I hired Mason, so Mason's working for me. I'm a horse veterinarian, so I need to somehow maintain six feet of social distance from my clients while holding horses, which I found out is you know, having the client hold the horse six feet away is a perfect way to get killed. So um, I hired Mason, my son Mason, and he's riding along with me, which has been great. He's a senior in high school, and so he's holding the horses for me, wear the masks and gloves and, and the whole deal. Uh, Miles has been coming on some calls with me too, which has been super fun. Nice long drives out to Sage to, to treat a colicky horse and good talks. Uh, it's been nice being with the kids more. It's been nice that they've been with each other more. Um, Ellie got uh, guinea pigs uh, right at the beginning of all this, which was perfect because guinea pigs are super high maintenance. They're also super expensive, which they're worth it, but they're expensive. And uh, actually, no joke, a couple weeks ago, I took one of the guinea pigs to a ophthalmologist because it was having some eye issues. And that's what happens when you're owned by a veterinarian is when you have eye issues, you go to the ophthalmologist. So we did that. Um, Tasha's been schooling the kids. Her and Ellie have done 62 puzzles this year so far. And um, Tasha and I celebrated our 30th dating anniversary. So not wedding anniversary, we're not that old. But um, no offense to those of you who are. Uh, but uh, our 30th dating anniversary, and uh, we celebrated it because we started dating when we were 15. We celebrated it by putting on some masks and doing like an apocalyptic shopping trip to Walmart. So that was cool. We got good pictures from that. We've been doing our weekly date nights now at Provecho in the, in the parking lot. So we get it to go and we eat in our car. So um, yeah, things have been going well. I've had uh, about 15 days that I've like 15 nervous breakdown free days. So that's cool, I'm keeping track. Got a little sign on the, on, the, on the wall and it says this many days nervous breakdown free. And so hopefully I'm not gonna have to put that back down to zero anytime soon. If I get to 30 days, I'm gonna get myself a small trophy, kind of like those little trophies that um, 
kids get for participating in soccer. And so hopefully that's coming in a couple weeks. So we'd love to hear your updates. We'd love for you to join one of the groups that we have throughout the week. We have lots of opportunities. If you're on our email, you know about it. Lots of opportunities for you guys to connect and share the updates of how you're doing. And I just want to encourage you guys, as I did already this week, that you're living through one of the best ministry opportunities of a generation. I really believe that. And we don't want to wait until it's over to minister, right? You don't wait until the best opportunity to minister in a generation is over to start ministering to one another and to your neighbors and, and to friends and people at work. And so um, be about that. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. We're going to pray together the words of the Lord's Prayer. And so if you pray out loud with me, we do this on Sunday mornings and it's honor system right now. But if you could pray along with me, the words that will be on the screen. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We're in a series uh, in Exodus called Freed to Follow. And we started this series back in February. And we had it all mapped out for several weeks in a row. Actually, several months. Um, way back in January. And the importance of telling you that is that you're going to find that the passage fits really well. Uh, maybe too well. <laughs> maybe divinely orchestrated for us. Uh, it was. Uh, take a look at Exodus 16.1. Exodus 16.1 starts this way. Then they set out for Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to our full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And we have this morning a great opportunity to look at the sin of grumbling. And grumbling is actually a theme in chapters 15, 16, and 17. You've got the, the bitter water in chapter 15. You've got this deal about food in chapter 16 that we're going to do this morning. And then you've got uh, next week, there's another grumbling about water. And so we're about a month out of Egypt and there's a whole lot of grumbling going on. And I say the sin of grumbling because Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling. And so that's a command, do all things without grumbling. Um, in the Greek of that verse, the all means all. <laughs> so we're supposed to do all things without grumbling. So grumbling is sin. But before we talk about the uh, sin of grumbling, it's important to ask, is there, is there any kind of complaining that isn't sin? Is all complaining sin? Is all complaining grumbling? And, um, you know, we might ask ourselves, is there a place for believers to voice their pain and their fears and their disappointments? Or is all that grumbling? Um, are Christians called to always keep a stiff upper lip? Well, as we look at scripture, we see that there is a type of complaining that God not only allows, but encourages. It's called lament. It's called lament. And I say that lament is encouraged because about a third of the book of Psalms are laments. About a third of the book of Psalms are laments. And remember that the book of Psalms, those are the worship songs of the people of God in the Old Testament. And they have songs like this, Psalm 142, verse 6. I pour out my complaint before the Lord. 
I tell him all my trouble, right? So there's an encouragement to pour out complaints to the Lord. J.I. Packer said this, there is nothing biblical or Christian or indeed human about the stiff upper lip. The Psalms of lament teach us that we must be a church where you can worship with weeping. A church where we can be a people who worship in our grief, not instead of our grief. And so grumbling is a faithless complaining. Lament is a faithful complaining. In lament, we confess to the Lord our feelings of pain and fear and disappointment. We bring to him our honest groanings. But when we do it, we don't charge him with wrong. That's the difference here, is that in lament, we don't charge God with wrong. Actually, in lament, we come to him specifically because we believe that he is good and wise and in sovereign control. And that's why we come to him. And our faith might be at different levels about that, but deep inside, we know that he is good and wise and sovereignly in control. And that's why we bring our lament to him. In grumbling, on the other hand, we don't see God as wise or good or sovereign. We may not even address God at all in our grumbling. Um, They didn't in Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, they aren't actually lamenting to God. They're grumbling to Moses. And so all grumbling, guys, is ultimately an attack on God's character. Look at verse 8. Your grumbling is not against us, Moses says, but against the Lord. Because, guys, if the Lord is sovereign, and he is, then all of your complaints about reality, all of your complaints about reality, the things that are, are really addressed to him. I'll say that again. If God is sovereign, and he is, then all of your complaints about reality are ultimately addressed to him. And so be careful how you complain. You can complain as a lament, but don't complain as grumbling. All grumbling ultimately is attack on God's character. All grumbling is really bearing false witness about who God is. Um, Grumbling isn't just a response to our circumstances. Grumbling shows something in our hearts. Grumbling shows that we have a false view of God's character. And so whenever, and and you know, we got to realize this too. God is good, right? God is good. He's always good. He's good all the time, right? Whenever we're tempted to think that God isn't good, we're wrong. Okay. I know that seems simple, but whenever we think that God isn't good, it's because we're wrong. It's like a kid that doesn't like the taste of costly wine. The problem isn't with the wine. The kid's wrong, right? The wine doesn't need to change. The kid needs to change. If we don't think that God is good, we're the ones that need to adjust. We're the ones that need to change. God is good. He's good all the time. The opposite of grumbling, guys, is worship and witness. And we see a beautiful picture of that in chapter 15, right after the parting of the Red Sea, there's this beautiful chapter of worship. And by refraining from grumbling, what we're doing is we're actually worshiping God and witnessing to his character. Philippians 2.14 says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputes, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, uh, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, if we will refrain from grumbling, we'll actually be lights in this world, in this twisted generation. Twisted generation characterized by grumbling. And I know I keep bringing this up, this word grumbling, because it's in the text, and that's where we just happen to be, divinely orchestrated. But guys, isn't it perfect for our time? Aren't we coming to the place in this whole stay-at-home order and stuff when, you know, this is the real temptation, right? We're getting to a place of great temptation. And guys, we're also living through one of the greatest opportunities to shine, like Philippians 2 says we can. 
We have a wonderful chance to say with our lives that God is good and wise and sovereign and an awesome opportunity to, to love and serve those around us. But guys, grumbling bears false witness about God. Grumbling is a character assassination aimed at God. That's what they're doing here. Look again at verse three. The people of Israel said to them, said to Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to our full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I always laugh when I read that because what their point of view is, is that God took these wonderful poor people who were apparently just like chilling at a Vegas buffet in, in Egypt and dragged them out into the desert to starve them. I love how it says that they, they sat by the meat pots. <laughs> it's like, guys, you were slaves. You weren't sitting by anything, right? But their perception is they're just chilling at this Vegas buffet. They're totally happy. God comes in and drags them out into the desert to die. And you might think to yourself, man, from their point of view, like what kind of a God would do that? You know, what kind of a God would take these poor people and make their lives worse? They're basically saying by their grumbling that you have made our lives worse. Now, do you see, do you see how your grumbling and my grumbling is an attack on God's character? When we grumble, we're saying to God, you are not good. I cannot trust you. You are not the kind of person I can trust with my life. That's what they're doing here. And that's what we do when we grumble. So what's God's response? What's God's response to this great sin of grumbling? I mean, what's God's response to this character assassination that they're doing on him? And I think you'll find it very surprising. Look at verse four. The Lord says this. So they're, you know, attacking his character and grumbling and, you know, saying life was better without him and all this stuff. And what is God's response? Look at verse four. Behold, I am about to rain. What? I'm about to rain something down on you guys. What am I going to rain down on you guys? How would you fill in the blank? What would you rain down on them? It's shocking what God fills the blank in. I, behold, I'm about to rain what? Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven on you. Isn't that amazing? Bread. <laughs> like, okay, hailstones, lava, you check, check. You know, I can think of a lot of things to rain down on them at this point. God goes, you know what? I hear you're grumbling. I'm going to rain down on you bread. Guys, that's a non sequitur. <laughs> it doesn't follow from verse three and all the things that they're saying about the Lord in verse three. And then he says, behold, I'm going to rain bread on you. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Guys, grace is that way. Grace is a non sequitur. It's like we sin, God responds in grace. And guys, isn't it humbling? I mean, how many times have you grumbled about your situation, even in the last few weeks, not even thinking of God's wisdom and goodness and his sovereign control? Maybe you aren't thinking about him at all right? That would be the way I would do it. And in response, God just continued to just rain down bread on you. How many times has that happened in your life? Way more than we know, guys. Way more than we know. Guys, this is what God is like. We've been so wrong about him. God is so good. God is so gracious. God is so generous, right? He fed him. He fed a man. Look at verse 14. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flaky Flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, right? They're like, what is this stuff? It's bread, eat it. And it had a funny name. The name manna actually comes from the Hebrew uh, words that, that mean, what is it? So they say, what is it? And they're like, well, we'll just call it, what is it? And we'll call it manna. Manna means, what is it? Um, and it apparently tasted great. If you look at verse 31 
the second half, it says it was like coriander seed white and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Sounds pretty good, right? Wafers made with honey. And so he puts this little powdery stuff out. They can gather and they can make it into stuff. And, it's, and it has the taste of honey. And if you look at the word honey and you think about Exodus, where else is honey mentioned in Exodus? It's mentioned for the promised land, right? That it says that the promised land is a place flowing with milk and honey. And so what the Lord's done here in this manna as they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years is he's given us this manna with a, a little taste of the promised land, right? They get a little foretaste of the promised land, a little piece of honey from the place that they're headed. And, and then he gives them quail. He doesn't give them quail all the time. He gives them man all the time, but he gives them sometimes quail as well. Look at verse 12, second half. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. Another non sequitur, right? I heard you grumbling. I heard you attacking me. I heard you saying awful things about me. And I'm going to give you meat. And in the morning, you shall eat your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. In the evening, quail will come up and cover the camp. Isn't that convenient? And in the, in the morning dew, they'll lay out the manna around the camp. And that's how he fed them for 40 years. For 40 years, he fed them that way. And God is so good to feed them. And God is so good to you guys to show them his glory. Look at verse seven. He says, in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. What's the next word? Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Another non sequitur. This is strange, right? I've heard how you grumbled against me. And you know what? I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to feed you and show you my glory. And so look at verse 10. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And so, which is even better than food. So they're, they get fed and then they get something better than food. They get God's presence. I love what the Puritan uh, Thomas Watson said in the, in the body of divinity. He said this, God is the perfect good. He is the sweetness in the flower. God is a satisfying good. The soul cries out, I have enough. I shall be satisfied with your likeness, Lord. Let a man who is thirsty be brought to an ocean of pure water, and he has enough. If there is enough in God to satisfy the angels, then there is surely enough to satisfy us. The soul is finite, but God is infinite. Though God is a good that satisfies, he is never excessive. And then listen to this. Fresh joy springs continually from God's face. And he is as much to be desired after a million years by glorified souls and bodies as at the first moment. There is a fullness in God that satisfies and yet so much sweetness that the soul still desires. And then listen to this last line. God is a delicious good. God is a delicious good. Guys, here's the deal. God is the kind of God who is good and generous, so we should trust and obey him, right? God is the kind of God who is good and generous, so he's worthy of our trust and obedience. That's how we should respond to him, right? We should trust him. <laughs> they should trust him. There's been their guilt, then God's grace, and now they should trust him. And that's actually the layout of um, my favorite catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, it's laid out in three parts. And the layout is guilt, grace, gratitude. The idea is in the beginning, you find your guilt, your sin, why you needed Jesus. Then in the middle, it talks about grace. It talks about how Jesus has fulfilled all of our needs for forgiveness and adoption and reconciliation with God and a great future and all that, right? So you get guilt, grace. And then the last part is gratitude. 
The last part is about how do we respond to the amazing grace of God? And the way they deal with the Ten Commandments is they put them in that section. I mean, certainly the Ten Commandments show our guilt, right, and our need for grace. But the Ten Commandments are also a part of our gratitude, right? Um, the, it sh- the Ten Commandments show us how we should respond to the amazing grace of God. And so you've got grace, uh, guilt, grace, and then gratitude. God's grace makes us want to obey him. And that's what we see in this passage, right? You see the guilt of their grumbling, and then you see the grace of the manna. And now what would you expect next but the gratitude of trust and obedience to God? And there's a test here. You see it in verse 4 even. He says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, listen to this, that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. And so here's how they should have responded to the grace that he gave them in the manna. He told them to only collect what they needed for each day. Don't hoard it, okay? You collect what you need for each day. You don't hoard it. You trust that I'm going to have some for you the next day. But unfortunately, they do hoard it. Look at verse 19. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, maggots, and stank. And Moses was angry with them. And so they were supposed to trust God for each daily interval of food and not hoard it, but they did. They hoarded it. They weren't trusting him. And then they were also supposed to collect um, twice as much just on on the sixth day so that on the seventh, the Sabbath, they could rest. Um, They were supposed to not collect anything on the seventh day. They were supposed to have already collected that on the sixth day. And it wouldn't stink if they collected double on the sixth day. God made it so it was preserved so that they could have food on the seventh. Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. See, they shouldn't have been doing that. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So they don't do very well in this first test at all. But you know, that's okay because they're going to be tested over and over again for 40 years. (laughs) God will put them through this daily, weekly routine for 40 years. For 40 years, every day it's going to be like, no, just collect what you need for today. There'll be some for tomorrow. Trust God the next day. No, just collect just enough for you need for today. Trust God for tomorrow. And then on the sixth day, take double. And then the seventh, trust God. Don't go collect anything, right? Because guys, the testing here that God gives his people is not testing like school testing. You know, pass, fail, here's your grade. Take a test, you're done. That's not the kind of testing that God's doing here. The kind of testing that God's doing here is more like the testing you do with metal when you heat it up. When you take metal and you test it, and you test it with fire and you heat it up, it does two things. It reveals the impurities that are in there, which they just saw. And it also refines it. You're able to take those impurities out. So God is daily testing them in the wilderness with this way of collecting their food every day. Because guys, God can't learn anything from this test, but they can, and they are. What are they learning? They're learning what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Right? God made this manna so it can't be stored up for the next day, so that they have no alternative but to trust God for tomorrow's bread. God set it up so they have no alternative but to trust God for tomorrow's bread. And he did this with them day after day for 40 years. Isn't that an amazing discipleship plan? <laughs> Aren't those amazing discipleship exercises? I mean, isn't it a wonderful gift that God gave these people? And perhaps some of you are there now. Perhaps God has some of you in that place right now that you've been put in a place 
that you have no alternative but to trust God for tomorrow's bread. Um, the, the Israelites, it was interesting, they were told to keep some of the manna in a little jar. So they were told to keep a souvenir of this training time in a little jar. And I was just thinking with my kids, I was like, you know, what should we save as a souvenir of this time of testing and training in the desert, right? What should we save? You know, I think, it, I don't know what you guys would say, but maybe we'll have a little jar that we'll keep out where we can see it with a, with a mask <laughs> and a little bottle of Purell and maybe a wad of toilet paper or something that we'll have on the, and so that when the kids ask later, or the grandkids ask, you know, grandpa, what's that? <laughs> you know, you can explain how God had tested us and tried us and how God was good with us in this time of testing. Guys, we like the Israelites have entered a desert place this year. We had no idea it was coming, right? Economy's good, things are good, March comes and we entered a desert place, guys. And the desert is a difficult time. It's a time that's uncomfortable, deserts are uncomfortable. Um, it's a place of uncertainty. And it's a time, guys, that requires a whole new level of trust in God, amen? This time, guys, is requiring from us a whole nother level of trusting God. And like the Israelites, guys, you might not pass the test the first time. I have not passed the test the first time. I told you guys in the beginning, like, you know, I have had 15 good days <laughs> of no nervous breakdowns. And um, it's a time of training, guys. It's a time of training. And there's more opportunities, right? You didn't do well on that test. Tomorrow's another test. Let's see how we do there. See what we learn. Have those impurities shown. Have them purified. Um, what we're doing right now, guys, as a people, as we're wandering in this desert, requires a whole nother level of trust. Fathers, I know there's a huge burden on you. You lead your family. You're the head of your family, you're the leader of your family, and you're leading through the desert, not sure what the future holds. And that's hard. You know, when you're asked questions, you have no answers, right? We're just going where the Lord leads us, you say. Uh, parents, both moms and dads, you might feel a little bit like Moses with a bunch of restless Israelites right now <laughs> with lots of complaining. It's hard. It's a desert time. Kids, those of you who are here, I know lots of the kids are in service with us now that weren't before. Um, kids, I know that you guys want to be with your friends. I mean, I feel that. I want my kids to be able to be with their friends. Um, the whites came by um, and they brought us a little uh, succulent you know, arrangement, stuff like that. And the kids said hi to each other at like 10 feet distance at the doorway. And um, it was awesome. It was so good to see them. But there was also this ache, this longing of like, oh, you know, to be with them. We can't, we can't. It was 10 feet apart from them, you know. Um, but kids, I know you want to be with your friends. I know you. some of you want to return to the school activities you have, or you want to see your grandparents, or, you know, you want to do the sports that you did or the activities you did, or, you know, the weekend fun that you had. This is a time of huge temptation to grumble. And when we grumble, guys, we're grumbling against the goodness of God. This desert requires, guys, a whole new level of trust in God. I think we need to acknowledge that. But guys, also the desert is a place where God meets us and shows us his glory. I mean, how many wonderful encounters with God are there in this book that happen in deserts, right? Tons of them. We could list them. It'd be endless. Hasn't it been true in your own life that God has consistently met you in the desert times? Here's what Deuteronomy 8 says about the time we were looking at here in Exodus. He says this, God fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. Listen to why. That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Isn't that great? To do you good in the end. 
right? Hasn't God shown himself good to you in new ways in this last month? I know that he has. This time of testing, guys, in the desert is an invitation to be trained by him. And we're being trained in how to trust God. It's the Lord saying to us, I'm good, I'm generous, I'm wise. And then he's saying, let me show you how to trust me in a new way in this new place. Let me show you how to trust me in a new way. Guys, we'd be crazy not to want to do that. And guys, we have every reason to trust him, don't we? We have every reason to trust that God is good and wise and in control. Hasn't God always been faithful to feed you? God has always been faithful to feed you, even when you grumbled. You know, hasn't he always been so faithful and so gracious that he would respond to our grumblings by raining down more bread on us? Hasn't the Lord always met your needs generously? And guys, what about this? What about how God has ultimately been generous in sending us Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven, the true manna, right? That's the ultimate generosity of God is that he sent us the true bread from heaven, the true manna, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came into the world, it was so obvious that he was the God of Exodus 16, wasn't it? You remember in John 6, when he feeds 5,000 men and their families, he feeds them bread. And it was such a clear evidence that this man, Jesus, is the God of Exodus 16 because he can make it rain bread, right? He can make it rain bread. It was Yahweh come in the flesh, making it rain bread again on his people. And the people that were there, they made the connection. John 6, 31 says this, the people said to Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Jesus, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus wanted to make clear to these people that he didn't just come to give them bread. He came to be the bread for them. They thought that Jesus had come to be their Moses, right? To give them manna. They thought that Jesus had come to be their Moses, but Jesus came to be their manna. The the text here says too that the people responded in John 6 with grumbling. How classic, how perfect, right? They respond with grumbling. They're like, well, just give us the bread. You know, we don't want to hear all of that stuff. Right? They were short-sighted like us. Just give me the stuff back. Just give me the bread. Right, But guys, Jesus didn't come to give them bread. He came to give them himself. Because guys, Jesus didn't come to be a philanthropist. Right, Jesus didn't come to be a philanthropist. Someone who gives of their excess. Philanthropy is nice, but it doesn't hurt. There's no nails in philanthropy. Right, Jesus didn't come to make a donation. He came to die. He came to die for your sins and my sins to give us eternal life. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has none than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come just to give us bread. He came to give us his life. His life given for you, broken on the cross for you, if you'll take him by faith as a gift. Jesus gave us this really beautiful image too, of what saving faith is like in that chapter. 
Here's the beautiful image that Jesus gave of what, what does it look like to really take Jesus as your savior? What does it look like to really believe in him? And Jesus said, it's like eating him. Uh, John 6, 47, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So believing in Jesus is like eating. It's like taking hold of him and receiving him to give you life, to give you everything that you need. Saving faith is like knowing that you're empty, right? And taking Jesus into the center of your being as the only one who can give you everything you desperately need. Um, Saving faith is to be filled, like eating, to be filled with Jesus, to, to be filled with him to fill all of your needs for forgiveness and new life and power to live. Jesus is the bread of life. He's all that we need, all that we need. Jesus is that bread of life. Believing in Jesus is like eating. And I just want to ask you this morning, because many of you visiting with us, have you taken him in to fill all of your needs and satisfy all your hungers? Have you taken Jesus in to meet all of your needs and satisfy all of your hungers. Because he will. If you make Jesus your all, he's all you'll ever need. So you're now invited, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're invited to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. In the Lord's Supper, we do three things. We remember. We remember the generosity of God by remembering his broken body and his shed blood. We remember. We receive. The Holy Spirit makes this real food. By uniting with with Christ and allowing us to feed on his true spiritual presence. The Holy Spirit who connects us with Christ through the Lord's Supper makes us actually able to commune with Jesus in a special way. To feed on his true spiritual presence. This is spiritual food. This is food that strengthens us to be faithful in the desert. So we remember, we receive, and then we rejoice. We rejoice because this communion, guys, is a foretaste of the fellowship we're going to have with Jesus. This communion is a foretaste of the fellowship we're going to have with Jesus. Just like that manna had a little bit of honey in it, had a little bit of honey in it so that they would taste where they're going, the Lord's Supper is a taste of the sweetness we're going to have when we see Jesus face to face. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are so much more generous and gracious and good than we could have ever conceived. And we thank you. Jesus, you gave us not just bread, but your body broken on the cross for our sin. Thank you. Spirit, you have generously made all these things the most valuable gifts we've ever received. You are the one who's caused our souls, our spirits, to have the taste buds that would desire Jesus and crave Jesus and be filled and satisfied with Jesus. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for that. We love you. Show us your goodness in the desert place so that we will not grumble, but instead declare your glory. And Lord, help us to do good for our neighbors during this time. We pray this in the name and for the glory of Jesus and all God's people say, amen. Let's worship together in the wilderness. Let's take the manna he's given us to strengthen us. And then let's be those lights out there in the world. Love you guys. Looking forward to the great reunion with you guys. And I pray the Lord's blessing on you all.